The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. No longer the knowledge that man thinks he has of God when he works up his natural theology. The natural theology of the Greeks is the theology of a God who is not the creator, who is not the triune God of Scripture. In the case of Aristotle, God is pure abstract thought, thinking himself. No aces, no asios. And that is the is a projection. And then lift, man lifts himself up into participation with that projection as his salvation. Uh, I have a closely related question. Uh, you spoke against the mysticism of the medieval thought, too. But isn't, it, isn't there a certain sense in which uh, our relation to Christ is mystical? There is a true sense of mysticism. We are crucified with Christ to our sins. We are one with him. We are in Christ. And there is also the fact that we are risen with Christ from, from death. Paul tells us in Galatians 3 that the life that I now live, I live in Christ lives in me, and I live by the Son of God who gave himself for me. Well, now, that's a totally different mysticism than was the medieval mysticism. The medieval mysticism was a metaphysical lifting in the scale of being in accordance with the Plotinus idea that reality is a scale of being. Man is, because he is finite, near non-being. He's then, for that reason, right down at the bottom of the ladder, and he has to climb up. And then, when he's going higher and higher, and he is out of reach of his own vision, then he has to just, as it were, take off into the blue. And he knows not where. Now, that is the beatific vision that is promised him by the church, but it's not in the scriptures. And that's why mysticism, medieval mysticism, fits onto the natural theology of the medieval period. But a true biblical mysticism fits with and upon a biblical statement of the relation of God to man as man's creator, man's having fallen into sin, man's having been redeemed from sin through the death and resurrection of Christ, and having been born again by the Holy Spirit and given new life, and given faith in him, this is a true ethical relation as over against the mystical notion of the Middle Ages, which was a metaphysical lifting in the scale of being. We have seen so far that in the beginning of the Middle Ages, the position of Plotinus and the position of St. Augustine stood diametrically opposed to one another. Each of them had a comprehensive interpretation of life as a whole, and each of them had one that included God and man and this world. Plotinus had a view based on man. Augustine had a view which is based on God's revelation in Jesus Christ. In the second place, we considered how in the early Middle Ages, Dionysius, John Scotus Origina, and others tried to combine the position of 
Thomas of St. Augustine, and of Plotinus. We consider now in the third place, very briefly, medieval man's view of knowledge as it is presented, particularly in Thomas Aquinas. Man's view of knowledge, according to Thomas Aquinas and according to medieval philosophy and theology in general, runs parallel to his view of being. As there is a scale of being, man at the lower, God at the higher, level of existence, so there is a scale of knowledge. While man lives in the world of space and time, he is distinct in being and in knowledge from absolute being and from absolute knowledge. Man is distinct from absolute being and absolute knowledge by virtue of his participation in absolute non-being. He's as far away from God as he can be so far as he participates in non-being or pure contingency. Similarly, man's knowledge is distinct from absolute knowledge and absolute being because it partakes in absolute ignorance. Man knows nothing because he is nothing. That is, up to an extent he is nothing and he knows nothing. Man's being is being on the way upward from pure non-being to pure being. Man's knowing is growing from pure ignorance toward pure omniscience. Medieval man was therefore confronted with the basic problematic of Greek philosophy already discussed. How can man identify himself at all in distinction from other men and from other things on this scheme? On the one hand, he cannot identify himself till he is wholly absorbed in absolute rationality, because if he is not so wholly absorbed, he isn't rational being at all. On the other hand, he cannot identify himself till he is wholly absorbed in total ignorance and in total non-being. And if he is totally absorbed in total non-being and total ignorance, then he doesn't exist at all. In addition to facing this dilemma of Greek philosophy, together with the Greek medieval man, faced the dilemma involved in patching Greek philosophy and Christian thinking together. To the extent that medieval man was Christian in his thinking, he made the self-attesting Christ of Scripture basic to his interpretation of life. But how could he combine two absolutely opposite starting points and standing points in his thinking? How could he be true to the Socratic principle of inwardness and with it to the Greek culture of Plato and Aristotle, and also be true to the Christian principle of the absolute primacy of the self-attesting Christ. Medieval man was in many instances, no doubt, sincerely true to both, to the lordship of Christ and to the lordship of man. He was able to be true to both because he metamorphosed or changed the figure of the Christ in terms of the autonomy principle, the principle of inwardness of the Greeks. The biblical view of man and of his created freedom was assumed to be identical with the Greek view of man and his freedom in terms of slenderness of being. Similarly, medieval man thought he could and should think of the fall of man not as a willful disobedience against the will of God, his creator, but as yielding to a natural tendency within him to seek his freedom in the unstructured character of reality. Man's being and his reaction to his environment is therefore conceived of largely in terms of the problematics involved in the scale of being idea as it was so comprehensively expressed by Plotinus. 
When now we watch medieval man seeking to develop his culture, and in doing so to develop his ideal man, we note that he does so largely in terms of the scale of being idea. He thinks of himself as climbing up the ladder of, of being and of knowledge. He does not know that he is saved. How could anyone be assured of this unless he were given supernatural revelation? He knows that there can be no such thing as a finished sacrifice of Christ on the cross for sinful men. All being as man knows it is analogical. It is marked by absolute indeterminism as well as by absolute determinism. It is, being is, said Aristotle, analogical. Accordingly, the church is the continuation of the incarnation and the mass is the unbloody continuation or repetition of the sacrifice of Christ. Human knowledge of all things is therefore a synthesis of absolute knowledge and of absolute ignorance. Thomas Aquinas was the greatest theologian philosopher of medieval thought because he did more skillfully combine these two positions than any other man did. Before Thomas, Gilson tells us, medieval thought was in a great danger of falling into idealism. Following Plato, Augustine stressed the fact that truth is necessary and immutable. But, quote, in the sensible order, nothing necessary or immutable can be found. Medieval philosophy, the medieval philosopher Matthew Sparta argued that, quote, the essence of things are not bound up with any actually existing thing. They take no account of place and of time. On this view, the critics of Matthew Sparta argued the object of the intellect could be mere thought. But this did not trouble him. He maintained that it is not contradictory, quote, to say that the object of the intellect is the essence of the non-existent thing. Quite the contrary, we might say that the object of the intellect is never the being taken in the sense of existence. In possession of the intelligible species of an essence, that of man, for example, the intellect draws out of it the corresponding concept without representing the man either as existing or not existing. This was simply and obviously absurd to talk about men that do not exist. But St. Thomas, we are told, saved the day. Quote, faced with the alternative that no one desired and the skepticism that manifestly was threatened in it, he rehabilitated the sensible order. But in doing so, he did not go to the opposite extreme of Plato. He did not hold that sense experience as such was intelligible. He never derogated, quote, from the rights of thought. It is in this way that Gilson presents Thomas Aquinas as combining the abstract, absolute determinism and rationalism that was inherent in the position of the early Greek philosopher Parmenides and the equally absolute indeterminate position that was inherent in the philosophy of Heraclitus. Aristotle's philosophy, as well as that of Plato and other Greeks, notably of Plotinus, was only a particular form of this apostate philosophy in which these two principles are brought together and made correlative to one another and are canceled out the one of the other by the other. Truth, then, is basically on this position, the adequation of the intellect with reality. Man 
must be able to say that reality has to be what he, by thinking logically, according to the law of contradiction, must say that it must be. And yet man cannot do this because there is the principle of absolute nothingness or of contingency. And it was Thomas Aquinas who brought all of these things, we're told, in absolute wonderful combination with one another. It is thus that Gilson, together with his medieval masters, compromises the God of Christianity. In order to win the Greeks, he submits to the requirements of the Greeks. He allows the metaphysics of Exodus, that is, that God is being, to be reduced to the metaphysics of the principle of plenitude, that God is absolutely other and nothing but essence. In doing this, Yilson allows himself to be trapped into the net that is set for all those who, who, speaking for Christ, fail to speak for him through the voice of his all-encompassing authority. Now we turn then to see how this the scale of being idea and the scale of knowledge idea so beautifully and finally expressed by Thomas Aquinas is also expressed in the idea of scale of love. At the root of all, says Gilson, lies St. John's phrase, God is love. To say that God is love is not to say that he is not being. On the contrary, it is to affirm a second time for God's, that God is being. For God's love is but the sovereign liberality of being who in superabundant plenitude loves himself both in himself and in all his possible participations. As being, God is the sovereign good and the sovereignly desirable. Therefore he wills and loves himself, but since the good he loves is none other than his own being, and since the love by which he loves this good is none other than his will, which is itself substantially identical with his being, God is his love. And our love, our human love, is participation of the divine love, is therefore the participation in the divine knowing and the participation in the divine being. This signifies that to seek God is to have found him already. You cannot know God unless you are known of God and have been known of him from all eternity by means of being part of God. Man is taken up into the circle of love, which begins and ends with God's love of himself. Quote, here is no affair of a stream that ever gets ever further and further from its source and eventually loses itself. Born of love, the whole universe is penetrated, moved, vivified from within by love that circulates through it like the life-giving blood through the body. There is, therefore, a circulation of love that starts from God and finds him again. The conclusion, then, is unavoidable that to love God is already to possess him. And since he who seeks him loves him, he who seeks possesses. Our quest of God is God's very love in us, but the love of God in us is our finite participation in the infinite love for which God loves himself. This new metaphysics of love, says Yilson, wholly based as it is on the metaphysic of being, leads us to ask more particularly about the nature of human love. 
This love, this human love, obviously has God for its object. The great commandment requires man to love God absolutely. He must love God disinterestedly. But how can finite man do this? Can we possibly have a non-egoistic love? If so, how does this pure love for another stand to that love of self which would seem to lie at the root of all natural tendencies? Here we stand once more between the horns of the same dilemma which always arises out of the relations of being to being and the only difference is that instead of encountering it in the field of existence, of causality, or of knowledge, we find ourselves at grips with it in the field of love. And just here, as it happens, it is particularly formidable. Man having a will naturally desires the good, the thing that is good for him, his good. On the other hand, no Christian philosopher can ever forget that all human love is a love of God unaware of itself. And indeed, as we have already shown, all human love is analogical participation in God's love of himself. The solution lies then, namely, in the fact that we are inherently what we are because the love of God is in us. Quote, if the love of God were not already within us, we should never succeed in putting it there by ourselves. The answer lies in the concept of participation. Our very being is participation in God's being, and in God being is love. So in our participation of his being, we are participating also at the same time in his love. As therefore we say that God is the only true being, and all other beings are such beings as can scarcely be said to have any being, so we say that God is the only real love, and the love of beings can scarcely be said to be love. Yet beings have a measure of being, because they participate in absolute being. So beings also have and are a measure of love, because they partake in absolute love. Quote, in a Christian universe, in which beings are created by being, every creature is a good and an analog of the good. At the root of all this order of relations, there lies therefore a fundamental relation of analogy, which rules every derived relations subsequently set up between the creator and the creature. The antinomy that troubles us in all this, says Gilson, is now disposed of. Men always have God for their final object of their love. When they love a particular good, they love it as an analog of the creative God. When men love themselves, they love themselves also as analogs of God. When men seek their own perfection, they're seeking the divine likeness. Men's perfection, quote, precisely consists of this divine likeness it becomes impossible to desire the supreme good merely in view of this particular good. On the contrary, the particular good must always be desired for the purpose of absolute good. And now in this life, of course, it may be difficult to see this basic identity between the love of self and the love of God. But here again, the problem is solved. Men have the promise of the beatific vision that is to say, a state in which this intellect will know as God knows himself, it will be seen without difficulty that man is destined to reach simultaneously and by one and the same act, both the summit of his own perfection 
and all the fullness of divine resemblance that is open to him. What is this but to say that the key to the problem of love lies in the doctrine of analogy, and that for its resolution we must return to the basic principles laid down in the early masters, and then all of this is obviously similar to the position of Plotinus and his scale of being. It thus appears that as natural theology comes from and leads to mystical theology, so natural morality comes from as it leads to mystical morality. Man is intellectually and morally what he is because God, in the plenitude of his being and love, loves himself in the beings that he has created because they have come into his existence. This is the way downward from God to man. Then follows the way upward from man into God. But this is basically a return of God unto and into himself. Man is what he is because of the being and love of God that is within him. But God as absolute being or love has distributed himself thinly and widely into beings, many beings, finite beings. So these many finite beings tend to go upward or backward into absolute being in order to escape falling into non-being altogether. Or rather, through the inherent upwardness and backwardness of things, of beings toward God, it is more basically God who is tending back into himself. It is at this point that the basically dialectical character of Gilson's view of morality and of the whole of the medieval position appears. After all, his argument runs, by saying that God is being, we have said that he is more than intellect. He is will and power, too, and he is love. And this will and power and love is as ultimate in God as is his being. It is identical with his being. So the principle of rationality, which leads to the idea of the eternal immutable existence of all that exists, must be made correlative to the idea of irrationality, which leads to the idea of the ultimate existence, non-existence of all that exists, the great circle of love in which basically God loves himself is but the expression of the idea that God is the whole and as the whole is a whirl and that man is a little whirl, whirling within a great world. Of course, the imperviousness, distinctness of the will of man must at all costs be maintained. It is the source and foundation of this whole position, as was the position of Socratic inwardness for the whole of the Greek philosophy. But since natures are natures because God made them so, to deviate from their own essence is the same thing as to contravene the rule laid down by God in the creative act, that is to say, God himself wants men to be independent wills. This virtual identification of the law of God with the reason of the created man is, of course, the natural consequence of Gilson's principle of unification. This principle would by itself lead to sheer determinism. This principle of sheer determinism operates in the whole of Gilson's thinking. It operates in the whole of Thomas's Aquinas's thinking. It operates all the way down the line from Dionysus, Scotus Origina, through Thomas Aquinas, and the whole of medieval mysticism. 
the operate, it operates as the principle which was first expressed so fully and so definitely by Parmenides that being must be what man can by thinking consistently according to the law of thinking of contradiction says it must be. The theology of the word is in all of this controlled by the idea that God eternally utters himself and that in particular in individual men. Individuals are truly real, and all that is truly real is so because God's being is present in it. Now, that's the application of the Parmenidean principle. The causality argument is valid, supposedly valid, because of the principle of the Greek thinker Parmenides, and that position in here leads immediately to determinism. In expressing himself in the word, God expresses the totality of all possible things. Neither Parmenides nor Spinoza has done anything more drastic than this. Quote, he who made the world must have known, foreseen, and willed what the world would be down to its last details. So what is left of the free will of man and of the efficiency and of his efficiency and of second causes Having thus gone all the way with Parmenides, we then go all the way with Heraclitus, the exact opposite. All things flow. Their essence is to turn into the opposite of themselves. It is of God's essence to turn into the opposite of himself and to flow back into himself. But he cannot flow back into himself because his essence is to flow out of himself. So what is the difference between God and man and what is left of the free will of man and of the reality of second causes? When we follow Parmenides, we lose the free will of man by its absorption into an eternal immutable law. When we follow Heraclitus, we lose the free will of man because by, by it, it is absorbed into the bottomless cauldron of chance. The medieval solution is to combine Parmenides and Heraclitus in the notion of analogy. It is this forms in the heart and center of the nature of grace scheme as Thomas Aquinas works it up. Each must be taken as having as much right as the other. The idea of absolute all-inclusive immutability and the idea of absolute all-inclusive immutability must be set in dialectical relation to one another. This shows that medieval thinking as well as ancient thinking is basically dialectical thinking. By this Parmenidean Heraclitian dialecticism, all problems must be said to be solved. If they're not obviously solved, here they will not, they will be solved at last by means of the beatific vision, that is to say, pure mysticism is simply an addition, an upper story built on top of the logical reasoning that is carried on by means of these two mutually correlative and mutually destructive principles of absolute determinism of absolute indeterminism. The law of contradiction is satisfied by means of the promise of the vision. Exactly as in the case of Plato's philosophy, God is said to be the cause of the good and another principle is said to be the cause of evil. And when these two are seen to be mutually exclusive of one another, then Diotima the inspired points to that holy other which is above good and evil. Mysticism is the end of Greek philosophy. Pure, irrational, non-reasonable mysticism. It is also the end of medieval thinking. 
The law of contradiction is satisfied by means of the promise of the vision. In the world beyond, when we shall know as we are known, by God, the argument goes, we shall see how, in principle, our analogical being, knowledge and love, was all the while the participation in the adequation of intellect with, with being, the absolute love of God for himself. Now, underneath all of this is the view of man in which the particular of particular importance it is for us to observe that the principle of plenitude or the scale of being underneath is underneath it all. Those theologians who, like Augustine, we're told, followed Plato, could not justify their own faith in the unity of man. But those who followed Aristotle, we're told, found, it, found in his philosophy the integral man. After all, if man is to be saved by grace, he must first know who he is and what he is and what he needs to be saved from and why it is that he must seek for union with God. If then we adopt the Aristotelian position, we're told we shall no longer be troubled with any difficulty about substantial unity of man. It is along this line of reasoning that we are then told that with a true view of man, as developed in Greek philosophy, you can have also a true view of Christianity. You can add Christianity to the Greek view, and then you have a synthesis that is a unified and internally intelligible position. What then is the answer of medieval man to the question of Jesus? Who do you say I am? The answer given to Jesus' question is that he is, together with all other men, climbing upward on the scale of being from pure non-being to pure being. You have, the medieval man tells Jesus, more being, more knowledge, and more love in you than any of the rest of us have. Metaphorically speaking, you have come down to us. You have even gone more deeply down into the realm of utter non-being, non-rationality, and hatred than any of us have. Having thus come down to us and have gone lower than we have gone, you are, again, metaphorically speaking, taking all the rest of us with you toward absorption into pure being. This is what medieval man replies to Jesus' question. This answer signifies a rejection of Jesus and his claim that through him, of him, and through him, and to him are all things. Medieval man's rejection of Jesus and of his claim to be the alone sovereign ruler of all men is to all intents and purposes the same as that of the Pharisees. Medieval man is controlled basically in his interpretation of reality as a whole by the form-matter scheme of the Greeks. Medieval man seeks first of all himself and his own righteousness and then also accepts the righteousness of Christ. That is the source of the medieval and of the Roman Catholic view of good works. What do you say? Who do you say I am? asked Jesus. Comes the answer, you are not what you claim to be. We cannot but interpret you in terms of a principle of unity and a principle of diversity which excludes the appearance in history of any such thing as you claim to be. You claim to be one with the Eternal Father. To the extent that your claim is true on this point, we are all one with the Father, the eternal principle of rationality. You also claim to die for sinners. To the extent that this claim is true, 
we are all also dying for sinners. We participate with you in the same eternal rationality and in the same temporal irrationality. Accordingly, we reject every claim that you make to being absolutely unique in your being and in your work. We reject in particular your claim to have died for us in our place on the cross in order to reconcile us to God. We're not sinners in your sense of the term. If we were, we could, you could be of no help to us to escape the wrath of God upon us for our sins. There cannot be any such thing as a transition from wrath to grace in ordinary history. In the Mass, we celebrate the continuation of the Incarnation, but we shall adore you as having attained to a much higher elevation on the scale of being than any of the rest of us have. As we lift up our eyes toward you, we shall think of you as being much more than man. We shall think of you as a man-god. It was thus that medieval man tried to overcome the struggle between the city of God and the city of man. The struggle was internalized. Every man has within himself a downward tendency leading him toward the city of man. Every man has an upward tendency within him leading him toward the city of God. To be sure, so far as things in the space-time world are concerned, there are two classes of people. There are those who are within and there are those who are without the church as an institution. Those within the church are saved, those without the church are lost. But these distinctions are not ultimate, ultimate though they sound. Nothing ultimate can appear in this world. Our distinctions in this world point toward a final unity of all men and of all things above this world in terms of which they have their meaning. We shall use the crucifixion as a symbol of the fact that suffering sanctifies. Aeschylus, the Greek tragedian, already told us this, and you, Jesus, have exemplified this fact more dramatically and adequately than anyone else. You are indeed a man-god. In the first lecture of this series of three, we watched apostate man beginning to develop for himself a culture by means of which he could suppress the truth about himself, about the world, and about God. Deep down in his heart, Paul says, every man knows that he has created the being who, ha who has rebelled against his creator. But all men as sinners have developed principles of interpretation that rest on the presupposition that man is not a creature of God and is not a sinner against God, but that he is sufficient to himself, that he is autonomous. Working on this assumption, the Greeks told Paul, in effect, that if he wanted to tell them about Christ and the resurrection, then he must do so in terms that accord with the idea of this human autonomy. But Christ had appeared to Paul and had shown him that truth and life comes to men only if they forsake their vaunted autonomy and bow to Christ as their creator, redeemer, king. There were those of the Greeks who repented and accepted this Christ whom Paul preached, but many did not. They said in effect, and from their premises they had to say it, what the Pharisees had said to Jesus in so many words that he, being a man, blasphemed when he made himself out to be God. In the second lecture, we saw that in the period of the Roman Empire, preceding the Middle Ages proper, Plotinus carried on and developed this motif of thinking of the Greeks, and that Augustine, though not an apostle, carried on the motif of the thinking of Paul. 
Plotinus worked up a comprehensive interpretation of all religious and theoretical experience in terms of human autonomy. The result was a massive, all-comprehensive view of being in which all things are gradationally related to one another. There is, argues Plotinus, a scale or a ladder of being, and man is man climbing up this ladder by the power of being within him. Over against this position of Plotinus, Augustine worked up the Pauline idea that man is the creature of God, but has in Adam become a sinner against God, and as such is and remains under the wrath of God, unless Christ, the Son of God and Son of Man, bears this wrath for him on the cross and sets him free in Christ to develop his paideia, his culture, unto God. Now, medieval man, we saw, attempted to make a synthesis of this Plotinian and this Augustinian point of view. And in the name of his synthesis, he rejected the claim of Christ to the effect that in him alone is truth and life. In effect, medieval man calls Christ a man-god or a monstrosity. Now, in this final lecture, we inquire into modern man's estimate of Christ. Will he accept the claims of Christ? Will he interpret all of life in the name of Christ? And what name will he give to the Christ? To obtain an answer to these questions, we must trace briefly the view of man and of the cosmos, and we begin, naturally, with the Renaissance. What does the Renaissance man think of himself? To see what he says about himself, we at once compare and contrast Renaissance man with the Reformation man. Renaissance man finds his freedom where the Greeks found it, in his construction of a culture or a paideia which excludes Christ and that operates in opposition to Christ. Reformation man finds his freedom where Paul found it. His freedom is for him to escape from the sin of persecuting Christ to the joy of constructing a culture in the name of Christ. The question of, mod of science emerges in the time of the Renaissance and the Reformation as perhaps the chief bone of contention between them. The question of science expresses in modern form the Meno problem of Plato, that is, how is learning by experience possible? Man has a cultural mandate. Renaissance man says that this cultural mandate is given him by his own self-sufficient consciousness. Reformation man says that this mandate is given him by Christ, his creator-redeemer. These two views exclude one another completely. Accordingly, every fact is in dispute between them. The two have utterly opposite views with respect to the nature of the world and of God, as well as with respect to the nature of man himself. Renaissance man starts from himself as self-referential. He assumes that no method of research is tolerable or intelligible if it does not serve man as the ultimate interpreter of reality. On his view, no conclusion can be true if it is not such as flows from the premise of man as the ultimate and central reference point of experience. Reformation man, on the other hand, starts from himself as related to Christ and as thinks of Christ as self-referential and from himself and himself as the servant of Christ. Now, as we look at the development of this Renaissance man, we take notice of his relation, first of all, to medieval man. 
And for this purpose, we take our start with Abelard. Abelard was an obedient son of the church. But, says Wendell Bond, he is first of all a rationalist. Thought is for him the norm of truth. He believed in divine revelation, to be sure, but only because it is reasonable. He regarded Christianity as the philosophy of the Greeks made democratic. He is therefore the spokesman of free science, the prophet of the newly awakened impulse toward real and independent knowledge. A second name we may mention is that of William of Ockham. His name stands for the nominalism of the late Middle Ages. With his nominalism, Ockham helped the new science to force its way out of scholasticism. The idea of the independence of human personality begins to assert itself on every side, and notably so in Ockham. The individual mind knows only what is within itself. Thinking along these nominalistic lines, Nicholas Cusanus contends that human thought, quote, possesses only conjectures, that is, only modes of representation which correspond to its own nature and the knowledge of this of the relativities of all positive predicates, the knowledge of this non-knowledge, the docta ignorantia, is the only way to go beyond rational science and to attain the inexpressible, the signless, the immediate community of knowledge with true being that is the deity. When Occam declared the individual being to be alone truly real, he was therefore pointing to the real science the way to the immediate apprehension of the actual world. The way was thus prepared, says Wendelbahn, for a richer, more living, and a more inward writing of history. Now note how Wendelbahn sums up the whole situation with respect to medieval philosophy. As Plotinus exhibited the failure of ancient philosophy, so Cusanus exhibits the failure of medieval philosophy. Quote, Cusanus aims to bring every aspect of infinite and finite reality in an intelligible relation to every other aspect. He could be successful in this attempt only if he could deny the reality of the distinctness of all aspects one from another. But this must not be. Pure contingency must have a place in the system. Richard Croner adds, All modern philosophy is based upon these presuppositions. Man had never before felt his freedom so strongly. In his famous oration on the dignity of man, Pico della Mirandola, the Italian, glorified the autonomy of man in general and of the individual person in particular. The Frenchman Montaigne said, quote, I study myself more than any other object. That is my metaphysics. That is my physics. From what has been said so far about early modern man, Renaissance man, it is clear that he carries out the Socratic spirit of inwardness more consistently than even Socrates himself had done. Modern man had heard something of the claims of Jesus to be, to be the way, the truth, and the life, and he would have none of it. If Socrates rebelled against the revelation of God speaking to him through nature and through his own consciousness, Renaissance man rebelled against the same God as he had revealed himself not only in nature but also in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and as he had challenged him to repentance in the words of Paul and of the other apostles. But Renaissance man had, made sh had sure assured himself 
of his new foundation of freedom by proving to himself that the triune God of Scripture does not speak to him anywhere. Accordingly, he must interpret nature as being properly his own domain. The Englishman Francis Bacon did great service among his fellow citizens of the city of man when he said, Knowledge is power. Bacon was, says Croner, quote, the prophet of the conquest of nature by means of investigation and inductive thinking. True, Bacon had not entirely outgrown medieval forms of thought, but he did anticipate the possibility of knowing and using the natural forces of nature for the sake of aggrandizing man's power and self-dependence. But it is man in the present world that has to apply this principle to the material which chance presents to him. He must therefore interpret all reality, himself and the world alike, in terms of the idea of the correlativity of his abstract principle of identity and his abstract principle of diversity. In this respect, he is exactly in the same position as was ancient man. A new form of an old threat loomed on the horizon for him. It was the danger of his own absorption of himself, just newly acquired, his free individuality in the moment-by-moment grinding interaction of pure statuism and pure flux. It is this this threat which faces modern man at the outset. Summing up the matter, we say may say that Renaissance man has, in the first place, indeed renewed the pagan principle of inwardness. He is following in the path of Plato, of Aristotle, and of Plotinus. As he does so, he demonstrates willy-nilly that his victory spells his defeat. Renaissance man has gone beyond ancient man in claiming inward self-sufficiency for himself as the maker of culture. Second, Renaissance man has gone beyond medieval man in his effort to synthesize the Socratic insistence on his own self-sufficiency or ultimacy and Christ's insistence on his ultimacy. Renaissance man claims that the natural teleology of man is higher than and absorbs the teleology of Christ, while Reformation man claims that the supernatural teleology of Christ is higher than and absorbs the natural teleology of man. Renaissance man invites Christ to join him in building the kingdom of the city of man. He does this in a way basically the same as that of Satan when he offered Christ the kingdoms of this world if only he would make a bow to him as the power behind the throne. You may object to this harsh evaluation of the Renaissance man by saying that the Renaissance man was simply doing without Christ rather than opposing him. The answer is, as it has already been given, all human beings that are not for Christ are against him. The world is one grand estate that belongs to Christ. He is, he is its owner because he is its creator, redeemer. Renaissance man was fully justified when he repudiated the authority of the Roman church. The authority of this church was practically identical with the authority of a man-constructed Christ. But one cannot really reject such a false authority unless one bows to the true Christ. The claims of the true Christ were heard by Renaissance man, and they were rejected by him. Now as to the Reformation man, just one further remark. 
We have already indicated the fact that Renaissance man has his chief opponent in Reformation man rather than in medieval man. To clarify and amplify what has been said with respect to this contrast, we turn to Richard Cronard's evaluation of the difference. Reformation man and Renaissance man, says Croner, were together opposed to the external authority of the church. Going on from that point, Croner asserts that they stood together in their opposition to the externality of Romanism in terms of a spiritual inwardness. Now this is a basic misinterpretation of what Luther, the Reformation man, par excellence, was interested in doing. He was not interpreting life in terms of human consciousness. He was interpreting life in terms of the self-attesting Christ of the Scriptures. Now next we turn to Descartes, the first great modern philosopher, and to John Calvin, who stands for exactly the opposite position from that of Descartes. The absolute contrast of principle between the city of man and the city of God appears with particular clarity in the views of René Descartes and John Calvin. Descartes is the typically Renaissance man, and Calvin follows and develops the approach to God that Luther had discovered or rediscovered. Descartes stands for and develops the Socratic Plotinian principle of inwardness, and Calvin stands for the Pauline Augustinian principle of inwardness. The issue between them is that of certainty. In his book, New Paths of Philosophy, Fritz Heinemann says that ancient man concerned himself with the cosmos, medieval man concerned himself with God, and modern man concerned himself with man himself. Taking this statement at face value for a moment, we may say that both Descartes and Calvin in this respect were modern. They were both concerned with the nature of man. But when this has been said, it must at once be added that both Descartes and Calvin were also and finally interested in man as to his relation that he had to his environment and therefore finally to God. Both men sought for the true inwardness of man by searching out man's relation to God. In other words, both men were concerned not only with the Socratic question of how man knows himself, but also with the Platonic question as to what is the nature of true human culture. Now, what is the most important, uh, most important for our purposes here is what Croner says in the following words. The Christian inwardness is here interpreted as the unique position of the thinking subject in contrast to the object's thought. This, he says, with respect to, to Descartes. No thinker before Descartes had brought the principle of modern philosophy, its epistemological subjectivism, so emphatically and definitely to light. In that respect, he was the true initiator of the philosophy of the modern world. Now, basically, then, the, freedom, the problem was that of human freedom. The metaphysical systems of Descartes, Spinoza, and Leibniz denied it. In Descartes' philosophy, the idea of the individual ego, says Croner, is swallowed up by that of mathematical reason. The desire to justify the validity of science is stronger than the wish to understand the self. It was Kant who at last saw the full significance of man's inwardness. He did not allow any desire for a metaphysical foundation of science to overshadow the fact that man is a free personality. Says Croner, the critical position that Kant finally took 
originated in part from his protest against the doctrine that man was an automaton. Only thus could Kant save moral responsibility, and indeed the whole sphere of the moral life. We may think, therefore, of Descartes as the Renaissance man who, in line with the history of apostate man in general, in ancient and in medieval times, was trying to build up the city of man as over against the city of God. On the other hand, we think of Calvin, who was in line with Paul and with Augustine as trying to build a city of God. If Paul had come to earth in the time of the Renaissance and had met Renaissance man in the person of Descartes, he might well have said to him what he said to the Greeks, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Now then we turn to Immanuel Kant and his principle, the final statement, the most consistent, the most internally consistent statement of the Socratic principle of inwardness. We come to the consideration of Kant. We shall largely follow Kroner's description of Kant's principle of inwardness and along with it and following it give our own evaluation of it. According to Kroner, it is Kant who for the first time does anything like full justice to the principle of Socratic inwardness. Socrates started off well. He tells us that after he had read the natural philosophers, he was discouraged. None of them had a principle of unity that really enabled him to have a totality view of life. None of them did justice to the higher aspects of life. But then he had turned to Anaxagoras and learned that he explained all things the natural philosophers had spoken of in terms of a higher unity, namely that of the noose, the mind. After that, said Socrates, I worshipped him as though he had been a god. One cannot discover the mind, the noose, by a study of any of the natural elements by themselves. You cannot start from the bottom and reach the top. You must begin with the mind, with noose, from above, and then regard the natural objects in the light of it. It was Christianity's S. Croner that really developed this Socratic principle of true inwardness. It was particularly the Protestant consciousness that did so. Luther's final appeal against the speculation of the Romanist system of doctrine was to the internal consciousness of man. Luther did not believe in any system of doctrine, says Croner. He believed in revelation, therefore not in speculation. Luther was influenced in part at least by Meister Eckhart, the medieval mystic. And here lies the connecting link between modern philosophy, he says, and Protestant theology. Eckhart was the first outspoken subjectivistic existentialist mystic in the history of philosophy. It was his individual experience that he presented overtly in his sermons as that which mattered most to him in the search for truth and in the practice of religious devotion. Was it in this spirit of Meister Eckhart that Montaigne wrote, quote, I have my own laws and court, court to judge me, and I go to them more than anywhere else? End quote. We think it was. Croner thinks it was not. Speaking of this statement of Montaigne's, he says, a stronger contrast to the Christian conscience and and also to that of the ancients can hardly be imagined. Since he felt himself the center of the world, 
he did not know repentance. But did Meister Eckhart know repentance? Montaigne has no God to pray to, says Croner, but Meister Eckhart did. Why is not Montaigne's inwardness as well as that of Meister Eckhart, a forerunner of Kantian inwardness? We've already heard Croner speak of Descartes as being a true, quote, initiator of philosophy in the modern world because he set up himself in distinction from the world as the starting point of an intelligible interpretation of human experience. Finally, Croner speaks of Blaise Pascal prefiguring Kant even better than did Descartes. After reasserting his spirit of inwardness, Descartes fell back on speculative metaphysics, but Pascal did not. Because of this, he directly anticipated Kant, says Croner. Now it is apparent from all this that in Croner's estimation, Kant did better justice to the idea of inwardness, of human self-sufficiency or autonomy, than did any man before him. He did better justice to the idea of the highest spiritual ideas that man finds rising up within himself as a member of the human race than anyone else before him. The idea of true inwardness requires us to reject every form of externalism. Socrates saw this point clearly. The idea of revelation is itself not wrong if only it is taken to mean that the higher aspects of human personality must enlighten and quicken the lower aspects of personality. Kant saw all this better than anyone else. Socrates, after all, fell back on speculation. Augustine also fell back on speculation. To be sure, he claimed to follow revelation, but he interpreted his revelation by means of conceptual system, and this is to all intents the same as speculations. Even Luther fell back on speculation when he took the Bible as containing conceptually statable and relatable doctrines. But Kant helped us to overcome all this speculation and to see the message of Christianity for what it really is, namely the message of Jesus Christ as the noose, as the mind that is within all of us and above all of us and going before all of us as we build together the city of man. Let us now see in the conclusion of this lecture what happens after Kant. What was Kant's influence, we ask, on the field of science, on the field of philosophy, and on the field of theology up to the time of the present? And then let us, in conclusion, note finally some of the movements that are taking place in the so-called Christian church. The first philosophy of science with which we now deal is that is the Roman Catholic priest Pierre Taillade de Jardin says Jardin one day early in the badlands of Arizona a dazzling flash of light strangely brilliant in quality illumined the most distant peaks eclipsing the first rays of the rising sun were you afraid that morning that man would now destroy himself if you were argues Tayad, then you did not really appreciate the true significance of that Arizona sunrise. Quote, to me it seems that thanks to the atom bomb, it is war, not mankind, that is destined to be elim eliminated. For now a true objective is offered us, one that we can only attain by striving with all our power in a concerted effort, and our future action can only be convergent 
drawing us together in an atmosphere of sympathy. I repeat, sympathy, because to be ardently attent upon a common object is inevitably the beginning of love. And so the process goes on for Teilhard de Jardin. He argues that we understand the meaning of evolution at last. The sunrise in Arizona is only typical of the tremendous change that is taking place in the whole world, all of which leads us on to Christian renewal. He summarizes his position when he says, Among this series of things that we see is the phenomenon of man. So far we have worked upward from below. We must now work downward from above. When we have done so, then it will appear that the human endeavor is one great event having a natural and a supernatural aspect, and herewith we have reached the position which we may call Christian humanism. To the Christian humanist faithful in this to his most sure theology of the Incarnation, there is neither separation nor discordance, but coherent subordination between the genesis of mankind in the world and the genesis of Christ in mankind through the Church. Now this sums up the whole position of Teilhard de Jardin, and you see how similar it is to that of Whitehead. It is process thinking. The whole of reality is conceived of as one great event beginning with the amoeba and coming to its climax in the Christ. We turn now, secondly, to the influence of Kant on modern philosophy. The Christ event of modern thinking is to all intents and purposes identical in meaning with Kant's general human subject. We have seen how this idea was brilliantly expressed in various modern theologians and modern scientists in Teilhard de Jardin and in Whitehead. Robert Collingwood presents the highest development of British idealist thinking. He was brought up on the thinking of F.H. Bradley, Bernard Bosenkett, and other British Hegelian idealist philosophers. He interested himself particularly in the question of history. What are the presuppositions which make history and historical thinking intelligible? Carry out the principles of Kant's epistemology and you have the answer. Work out a critical a critical estimation or a critique of historical reason on the basis of Kant's critique of theoretical reason, and you have the answer. It is the historical consciousness that must be presupposed as the source and the criterion of the categories of historical interpretation. We shall see how Collingswood's view of history leads him to reject the self-attesting Christ of Scripture. Collingwood's position is basically similar to that of the German existentialist philosopher Martin Heidegger. For both, the presupposition of the autonomy of the historical consciousness involves, as it is involved in, the idea of all reality is temporal. The great New Testament scholar Rudolf Bultmann appeals to both of these men for support in his program of demythologizing the work and the name of the self-attesting Christ of Scripture and for support for his progress of construction of the Christ event idea. Let us briefly trace the development of Collingswood's philosophy of history based on the assumption of the ultimacy of the historical consciousness. According to Collingwood, the view of history, the traditional view involved in the idea of a self-sufficient God and his all-controlling plan for whatever comes to pass, is unintelligible and objectionable. 
Collingwood refuses to think of man as the image of God and therefore as reinterpreting the interpretation of his creator-redeemer God. Collingwood thinks that the modern historian should follow Vico, the Italian philosopher of history, in holding that verum et factum convertuntur, truth and fact are convertible. Quote, the fabric of human society is created by man out of nothing. Every tale of this fabric is therefore a human factum, eminently knowable to the human mind as, as such. Collingwood thinks that in line with Kant's Copernican revolution in terms of the ultimacy of the general human subject, so a Copernican revolution has been accomplished in modern times in regard to the matter of, of history. So far from relying on an authority other than himself to whose statements his thoughts must conform, says Collingwood, the historian is his own authority and his thought autonomous, self-authoring, possessed of a criterion to which his so-called authorities must confirm, conform themselves. Suppose now that the method of Collingwood be applied to the New Testament and to the Christ of the New Testament who speaks through it. Here are the records. Here are the statements made by those who say that they were apostles of Jesus of Nazareth. What would Collingwood do with them? His answer may be anticipated from what we have said. Summarized in his own words, it is like this. Confronted with a ready-made statement about the subject he is studying, the scientific historian never asks himself, is the statement true or false? In other words, shall I incorporate it in my history of that subject or not? And this is not equivalent to the question, what did the person who made it mean by it? Although that is doubtless a question the historian also must ask and must be able to answer. Applying then his his principle to the gospel, Collingwood would wish perhaps to find out what Jesus said and what the apostles said. But even if he could find out exactly the difference between what the apostles said and what Jesus said, he would not simply rest with the statement of Jesus. He would ask Jesus to determine, he would want to know what Jesus meant when he said what he said. But even that would not be the end. No statement that would shine out clearly as the words of Jesus would be for him a final authority. For the scientific historian, he says, does not treat statements as statements but as evidence, not as true or false accounts of the facts of which the process of which they profess to be accounts, but as of other facts which, if he knows the right questions to ask about them, they may throw some light on these facts. It would therefore do the Orthodox Christian no good at all if he should drop the high view of the Protestant confessions about Scripture as the direct and divinely authoritative word of God in Christ and fall back on the general idea of trustworthiness of Scripture. Let us say that he is anxious to clear himself of the charge of circular reasoning involved in the position of these, of the historic Protestant confessions. So he tells Collingwood that he is, to begin with, merely taking the Gospels as historical documents, testifying to the life and the labors of Christ. Will not many of the critics themselves allow that several of these documents are trustworthy? Then let the critics pick out those documents and those words which they will admit to have been the words of Jesus. In all this process, we have no nothing that will help us to answer the question that Collingwood raises. All these things are to him merely evidence. 
when the question asked who killed John Doe and the rector's daughter says that she killed John Doe, the scientific historian says Collingwood does not take this as a true or a false account of the murder, but as a fact that she makes this statement as a true account of the murder, and this fact may be of service to him. When Jesus Christ says that he is the Son of God and has existed from all eternity with a Father, but has now come become incarnate in order that he might save men from their sins. The scientific historian must not take this at face value. If he did, he would disqualify himself as an historian. For then man would be reduced to a puppet of this God and of this Christ. Now from all this it appears that there are two mutually exclusive, internally consistent positions. First, that which is represented by the Protestant confessions. Second, that which is represented by Collingwood. Those who sympathize in their views with the former follow a mistaken policy if, in order to win men to an acceptance of their position, they take a lower stand than that they, than they do on the Scriptures as the infallible finished revelation of God. Any position lower than that, which simply identifies the Scripture in the original documents with the Word of Christ, spoken by himself or spoken on his behest but with his authority through prophets and apostles and in terms of these is fatal as far as Collingwood is concerned. Now then we turn to modern theology and see how it has been influenced by Immanuel Kant and we turn first thing of Karl Barth Karl Barth has told us over and over again that God is what he is to a man in Christ and that man is what he is toward God in Christ. God is in Christ wholly revealed and wholly hidden. God is in Christ the Christ event. He is the event of the universal salvation of man. It is to such men as have never heard of Christ as we have, as have no need of him, and as do not want him, that the post-conscient Christians come with the message of salvation through their Christ. Whether you have heard of him or not, says, says Bart, whether you think you need him or not, whether you think you want him or not, he is the one in whom you actually live and move and have your being. You know yourself only because you participate in his knowledge. The Cartesian faux pas, the mistake that he made, was that he tried to know himself apart from Christ. Calvin was right when he said that knowledge of God and of Christ is presupposed in self-knowledge. Calvin was right when he wanted no speculation about the essence of God apart from his revelation to men in Christ. Of course, Calvin, as well as Luther, was wrong when he made the salvation of men to depend upon what was supposed to be a once-for-all finished work of atonement in the space-time world on their behalf. A Christ who did that is not the real Christ anymore. Then the God who sent him was the real God. We now know, since Kant, that the real Christ is the event of the salvation of all men. Kant has shown us how to state and apply the Parmenidean principle of the adequacy of thought and being for our day. He has shown us that thinking is acting and that being is event. Accordingly, acting is event. And Christ is the event of all existence. Paul saw all this, says, says Bart, when he said, Knowing God, men have not kept him in remembrance. No one can help knowing the Christ event, because knowing is knowing in Christ. All reality is the Christ event. 
As such, Christ is the real man. All other men are fellow men with Jesus, mit Menschen Jesu. Christ is holy and exclusively the history of the salvation of all and every man. The man, this man, therefore exists inasmuch as this history, Geschichte, takes place. He is himself this history. How is it possible, the men of the Christ may say, that we never understand what Paul meant till after we saw him through the eyes of Kant's critical act philosophy. Our forefathers who wrote the early church confessions were struggling in vain to express the vision of the Christ event they saw but knew not how to state. The men who wrote the Creed of Chalcedon sought to express the idea of the Christ event in the static categories of Greek thinking. But now, with the help of Kant, we can actualize Chalcedon. We now see that God is not God in himself, and that there is no God in himself. There is no decree of such a God in himself. The divine nature of Christ is not an eternal, unchangeable something which must be artificially connected with a human nature that already exists in itself before its union with Christ. God is what he is in his act of salvation of all men in Christ, and man is what he is in his act of participation in this work of salvation of all men in Christ. Thus God turns wholly and completely, without residue, into the opposite of himself, and then takes mankind up into participation into his self-existence, his aseity. Accordingly, what took place outside the gates of Jerusalem with respect to Jesus of Nazareth does not as such spell the triumph of God's grace in men. What took place there and there is historical, ordinarily historical, to be sure, but as such it points, it merely points to the realm above the ordinary historical that is the Geschichte. Nothing absolute could take place in ordinary history. Ordinary history is not the real, the authentic history. Real, authentic history, Geschichte, takes place within ordinary history, but only, but when it takes place, there it is still wholly hidden in it. Only by saying this can we do justice to the uniqueness of the Christ event. God becomes man, and in becoming man is wholly lost in and hidden to himself and to men in pure contingency. Now Kant has helped us understand all this. But then, correlative to this, is the fact that in his resurrection from the dead and in his ascension to glory, God is wholly revealed in mankind, and mankind is wholly revealed to itself through him. How pitiably defective was the statement the historically orthodox confessions gave then of the steps downward in Christ's humiliation and death, and then the steps upward toward his exaltation, his resurrection, his ascension, and his session at the right hand of God in glory, as though these could possibly be thought of as following one another on calendar days. We now know that nothing that happens on calendar days can be that important. There can be no finished transition from wrath to grace in ordinary, inauthentic history, and how pitiably defective is the historic orthodox position when it says that it is, the Bible is the word of God as though the book written by men could as such be identified with the word of Christ. We now know that as we must actualize Chalcedon, the incarnation, so we must also actualize what the Protestant confessions say or imply about Scripture 
as the directly infallible and identifiable Word of God. And now that we have learned to actualize Parmenides' dictum about the adequacy of thought and being, we have learned to see the identity of them in the Christ event. It is difficult to stop setting forth the glory of the Christ event. In it, the Socratic principle of true inwardness has come to climactic expression. Socrates saw the vision only dimly. He thought that he could have true inwardness in himself without at the same time clearly seeing that he really saw himself as having his true inwardness as participant in Christ. Meister Eckhart saw the vision more clearly than Socrates had seen it. Eckhart experienced the death and the resurrection of the Christ event inwardly, he says. He realized that what happened to Jesus was not as such that Christ event, though not yet acquainted with our terminology. Eckhart saw that what happened in his story, ordinary history, factually and or revelationally, was seen for what it was as a pointer only to that which is beyond ordinary history, to Geschichte. Luther, too, in spite of his biblicism and his external appeal to the Bible, saw this vision. Even Calvin meant to fix our eyes, in spite of himself and in spite of everything, upon the Christ event. When we speak of Calvin, we think of election and sovereign grace. Well, Calvin really was an instrument of the spirit of the Christ event when he spoke of the sovereign electing grace of God. He gave us much of the terminology that we use even today. We now, with Calvin, as it were, say that all men are reprobate because of their sin. All men are under the wrath of God because they have offended the righteousness of God. We need only to add that all men are reprobate in Christ. This, Calvin, did not say, but this we have learned from Kant. This is what we have learned by using the Kantian notion of pure contingency as our principle of individuation. No one escapes pure contingency, but glory be, God in Christ has from everlasting to everlasting entered into contingency with us. The covenant underlies the idea of creation. We are creatures of God and as such partakers in the freedom or contingency of God. In his humiliation, God has in Christ gone under altogether. But since it is Christ as God who has gone under, and we have gone under with him, it is Christ who has gone upward, and we, all of us men, have come up with him out of pure contingency. These then are the corrections that we must make with respect to Calvin's view of the Christ and of his notion of our election in Christ. We must say that the idea of election and reprobation do not refer to individual men, but to stages with every, within every man. The sons of Isaac, Esau, and Jacob by name are symbols of the evil and the good that are aspects in all of us men. There are not two classes of men, one class lost and the other class saved. All men are contingent, that is lost, and all are eternal, that is saved. Reprobation is therefore next to the last, not the last or final word of Christ to all men. The last word to all men is that they are, to be sure, reprobate. But they are reprobate in Christ, and therefore as exaltation follows on humiliation, so all men are eternally saved in Christ. This is no doubt what Calvin meant, but only now, after Kant, has taught, have we been taught to see the Christ as the all-inclusive event of saving all men. 
now we can really do justice to the idea of both the sovereign and the universal nature of grace. Take one last glance backward at the pit from which we have been digged. The Synod of Dort actually sought to express the idea of sovereign grace by means of causal categories. They were not really to blame for this. Even Calvin had argued against Pigius' assertion of human autonomy that God's plan is the ultimate cause back of all things. Men were mere finite or dependent causes. Even Calvin did not see that the person-to-person relationship between God and man cannot be expressed in impersonal causal categories. And how many exegetes of Paul's discussion of election in his epistle to the Romans have not followed Calvin and the Senate of Dort in this respect? One looks back to them with pity as they struggle to express the sovereign universal grace of God in terms of naturalistic principles of science as they seek to deal with human persons as though they were mere things. One can realize how Socrates followed an Exagoras as though he were a god when he said that we must begin with noose and interpret the antinomies of nature in terms of it. We have now to see that the Christ event, including our faith as our participation in it, is the principle that gives us a unified interpretation of the whole of life. Kant has shown us that we must start our interpretation, even of nature, from the principle of the freedom of man. Kant himself did not see clearly that this freedom of man is freedom as the Christ event. Even so, without his critical view of knowledge, we would never have escaped arguing with one another and against one another in terms of naturalistic, inherently contradictory categories. Having now this post-Kantian theologian tell us everywhere how they may unify their approach to life, we turn to some of the recent church movements. We begin this survey of church movements with the confession of 1967 of the United Presbyterian Church of the United, of the United States. Dr. George S. Hendry, a professor of Princeton Theological Seminary of recent times, seeks to replace the Westminster Confession, which deals, as did the Senate of Dort, with causal categories and seeks to express the idea of salvation, of human salvation and of election in terms of it, in order that he may give us a new confession that does justice to human personality. Dr. James I. McCord, the present president of Princess Seminary, seeks to replace the Reformation view of man with that of modern evolutionary philosophy. Quote, Actually, the Reformers could not ask what is man. They did not have the tools and the background to raise the question. They could only ask what is man as a sinner. But the 19th century produced a revolution in biology with Darwin and his discoveries to be followed by a revolution in the social sciences and psychology. Modern science and philosophy, says McCord, have furnished us with an anthropology that enables man to be free in his I-thou dimension and determined in his I-it dimension without contradiction. Now all men may join the church of the Christ event. In particular, Presbyterians may rejoice that as their one-time leader, John Calvin, best represented the biblical teaching of the sovereignty of the grace of God, so their present-day leader, Karl Barth, 
now best expresses the sovereign universal grace of God. We need bar no one now from membership in the Church of the Christ event, except those who keep on mumbling about the Christ who is supposed to have identified himself directly with Jesus of Nazareth of Palestine and who identifies his word with the concepts and words of men. Now we look forward to the Congress of Man that is to be held, we think, in our imagination in the year 2000. First, there are the un- is the union of the Lutherans and the Calvinists. Were the Presbyterians the first to see the vision of the union of all churches and of all religions of mankind? If they claim to have been, there are enough conscientious Lutherans who claim the same honor. Thus Martin Heineken, a great admirer of Soren Kierkegaard, demythologizes scripture as thoroughly as Boltman does. Orthodoxy, argues Heineken, desires an objective basis for scripture in the idea of direct revelation. But for Kierkegaard, this entire orientation is wrong, which seeks this kind of an objective basis. So then we see that the conscientized Lutherans and the conscientized Calvinists have found one another. Then secondly, there is progress to be made from the fact that Paul Tillich thinks of Protestantism as a principle rather than as a set of doctrines. Protestant as a principle is eternal and permanent, criterion of everything temporal, says Tillich. Protestantism as a characteristic of a historical period is temporal and subject to the eternal Protestant principle. The principle of Protestantism is, says Tillich, not anti-Catholic. Protestantism is a positive, not a negative principle. Then, as if to outdo Tillich's broad-mindedness, Hans Kuhn, a great Roman Catholic thinker, assures us of the fact that the Catholic principle is also positive. Does Karl Barth speak of sovereign universal grace? Mother Church has done that before Barth appeared upon the scene. Barth and Catholicism ought to stand together under the flag of the Christ event. Then thirdly comes the union of Christians and Jews. The next preparatory meeting for the Congress of 2000 was held between Christians and Jews. At this conference it appeared that as the Protestant and the Catholic principles are identical, so also the Jewish and the Christian principles are identical. Of course, more demythologizing has preceded this meeting of all Christians and all Jews. The wise old teacher, Martin Buber, assured his Christian friends that if only they together with Tillich and Kuhn would think of their position as a principle and not as an embodiment of doctrine, he would be sure his fellow Jews would reciprocate. So long as you do not ask me to follow the example of Thomas when he worshipped Jesus as my Lord and my God, he says he would be glad to call him his brother. He understands the Jewish principle, and therefore he understands Jesus. Now the meetings of the Congress of Man to be held in 2000 were to be held in a large hall straddling the 38th parallel in Korea. Agreement had already been reached by representatives of the Jewish and the Roman Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox and the Protestant theologians that they would set no given doctrinal content as a barrier to Oriental thinkers. In his address of welcome, Karl Jaspers, the great philosopher, spoke of the great joy that he had experienced when he learned that the Christians were now all united. 
that he too could at last join the church, and he had already joined the church. They had learned to realize that the difference between them had come from a mistaken notion, equally adhered to by all of them, that, the, that man possesses an actual content of information on the basis of which he can determine what is true and false. But now we can have Buddha, we can have Confucius, we can have Christ, we can have all of these in a series of pictures next to one another. Representing the Orient, Dr. Gempo Hoshino spoke of his secret longing for a day such as this. God is what he is for us in his movement of grace toward man. Herr Barth was right when he said that grace is the highest attribute of God. All men are to be sure reprobate, but they are reprobate in Christ and therefore are elect in Christ. Then Arnold Toynbee, the so-called master historian of world history, rose to add his brief amen to the addresses of Jaspers and of Hoshino. If only we rid ourselves, each one of us, of our naturalistic notions that a religion is a matter of conceptual and doctrinal content, then we will realize that the suffering of Christ on the cross is seen for what it is, if it is the same as the suffering that the Greek tragedians, notably Aeschylus, spoke of when he said suffering sanctifies. Gentlemen, said Arnold Toynbee, I propose that we elect Jesus of Nazareth as the Nobel Prize winner of all religion. Did he not, better than anyone else, exemplify the principle of humanity when he allowed himself to be nailed to the cross so that all men might with him enter into the paradise of God, now also called the kingdom of man? I propose that Jesus be called the authentic man. Thus, modern man is given the answer to Jesus' question that he is the authentic man. Ancient man said he was a mere man. Medieval man said that he was a man-god, a monstrosity. And modern man has reduced the last remnant of divinity of Christ and has called Jesus the, the, the true, the real, the triumphal man. Now the problem facing this modern man is, of course, the same as that of ancient man of medieval man that he cannot find himself, he cannot identify himself, that he must make universal negative assertions about a reality that he has said has come into existence by chance. Paul the Apostle would have said, Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that the world by its wisdom knew not God. It pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe.